1: History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary.
0: April, today's episode is extra special. Yay. (laughs) I mean, we have received requests to cover today's topic since season one of the show. So for over a couple years now. Yeah. And that is
1: right because today we are beyond thrilled to bring you an episode on the costumes of the beloved television series, Downton Abbey. And this is made all the more special by the fact that the show's costume designer, Anna Mary Scott Robbins, is joining us all the way from
0: London. Yeah, and Anna was the costume designer. We should say for the final two of the show's six seasons. The show, the show ended much to our sadness in 2016, which is why all of us diehard fans were beyond thrilled when the Downton Abbey film was released last year. And just like the series, April Anna's designs for the movie did not disappoint. I must say that I have been a fan of this show since day one, which is probably not surprising to many of our listeners who know I have a certain passion for the 1910s. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you have an entire Instagram feed devoted <laughs> more or less to that topic of the teens, or time period, I should say. For those of our listeners that might not know, or perhaps need a little bit of a refresher, Downton Abbey is a British historical drama that spans the years 1912 to 1926, and it centers around the aristocratic Crawley family and their beloved domestic servants. And this relationship between the family and the staff um, of this estate where they live called Downton Abbey is really at the heart of the show and what makes it so special. And over the show's six seasons, we really got to know, love, and in some cases quite despise <laughs> many of these characters and their clothing of course and a lot happened in fashion during those years between 1912 and 1926 and thanks to the Crawley family's affluence their ability to participate in high fashion made what they wore
0: arguably its own character own star of the entire <laughs> series and the movie Oh, yeah. I mean, fashion, as you just said, was undeniably a star of the show, I have to say. I mean, where do we begin? Lady Sybil and her Worth and Poiré-inspired jupe culotte ensemble from, mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure, one of the earlier seasons. Then you have Lady Mary and VNA, All those intimate moments between Lady Mary and Anna when, you know, she gets Lady Mary dressed and undressed. I mean, what is there not to love? And especially for a fashion history conscious audience, this show is is especially wonderful because really this breath of time that this show charts it really charts this dramatic transformation that happened in women's fashion during this period so we have the birth of modern fashion as it transitions from the directoire inspired silhouettes of the edwardian era all the way to the shift dresses of the 1920s the latter of which we will really discuss today, and oh, so much more with our wonderful guest. And I have to say, you're going to have to excuse our technical difficulties today. Um, I Like, as we mentioned, I was talking to Anna all the way in London, and so we did have a little bit of interference. So um, please excuse that. But without further ado, Anna, welcome to the show. Yes, Anna. Thank you so much for joining us. Anna, it is such a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on Dressed. Um, Thank you very much for having
2: me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, and before we kind of dive into Downton Abbey, all things Downton Abbey, I would love actually, and I'm sure some of our listeners would too, to kind of hear about how you came to costume design. Is this something that you always knew you wanted to do, or how did you first know you wanted to be a designer?
2: I I haven't always known, actually. Um, I kind of discovered it by accident a bit later on when I went to art college after having studied law. Originally, um, I've always had a love of literature and history and have been fascinated by the clothing that was worn in uh, times gone by and, and also sort of developed an interest in the meaning of dress whilst I was studying law, interestingly. <laughs> um, and and so when I then sort of discovered that there was a an industry and a role that combined the kind of cerebral part of breaking down scripts and researching eras and looking at the kind of characterization of characters within a script, coupled with the kind of creative side of designing costumes, clothes, garments. Um, It was just a sort of match made in heaven. And I I sort of never looked back from that point. But it was was in my early 20s that I kind of discovered that this was my calling in life.
0: Fabulous. And can you tell us a little bit about your early career and how you got started?
2: Yeah, my, so my early career is it's quite varied. Um, I did a bit of work as a maker and a cutter, so I'm quite a keen maker myself, which I think I've, I've kind of used to my advantage as a designer because I think it helps you know what you're asking for if you know how you're asking somebody else to do it and so I, I worked on some bigger productions in workrooms. I worked as well I, I had a, a couple of training jobs and uh, worked as an assistant for a couple of years but even whilst I was doing that I was designing um, my own shorts and working with people in, on a kind of smaller local level um, up in Scotland where I'm from so I always had my eye on designing I think and progressed fairly quickly through to to sort of um, medium-sized jobs and and then work my way up from there.
0: And did you do any period films and TV shows before Downton Abbey?
2: Yes. So I had designed a, a sort of multi episodic um, show called The Bletchley Circle um, for ITV, which was about these code breakers during the war that then sort of carried on their detective work um, post World War II. So that was my sort of first televised period experience. And you came into Downton Abbey in the show's fifth
0: season, uh, just as it was moving into the 1920s. So what was it like taking over costume design for an already established TV show?
2: Oh, gosh. Um, Difficult on many levels. I mean, I'd always admired the show um, and was very aware of its um, huge fan base and the love that people had for it as a show and specifically the costumes kind of within that show. So I knew I was stepping out under a fairly bright spotlight, as it were, (laughs) um, and felt a huge responsibility to get it right and carry it on and, you know, do my very best to sort of take it forward seamlessly, but also um of course creatively i wanted to kind of make my mark on it so it was challenging but it was it was a challenge that i relished i was really excited about it and yeah welcomed with open arms by the amazing team behind it and such
0: a huge change in fashion too from kind of that pre world war 1 era where the show starts and then through the war and then you know, coming out of World War I and into the 1920s. So many exciting transitions and fashion that you really got to play with. But so for those of who might not know, can you take us through kind of what a typical design process for an episode might look like? I mean, how does one design a TV show? There's so many things to consider. There, there are a great many
2: things to consider. <laughs> um, and especially with Downton, with such a large ensemble cast, you know, you've got sort of 25 principal actors that are in day in day out so it's a kind of huge logistical challenge um and we we filmed so it's in, it's nine episodes so it's eight episodes plus the Christmas special in each series that I did so you're never really designing one episode I'd, I'd start with um, possibly a couple of weeks prep on my own, which would be my research time and would just be um, wonderful and exciting. And then slowly my team would build. So I'd have my assistant designers and supervisors starting, the workroom would start, and it would slowly build up to a very fast-paced team of people working very hard to get ready for the first day of shoot. But that then carried through as you um, prepped ahead, so you'd be establishing costumes from episode one whilst you were prepping for episode two. So it was a, a kind of plate spinning exercise, um, <laughs> and always keeping one eye head, um, you know, breaking down scripts and schedules as you went so that you were never caught out. And things moved quite quickly with the, the way that, that when a script would be um, issued to when we would start filming, there wasn't a huge turnaround period. So it was pretty challenging, but, but brilliant. And I, I really did utilise the work I made a lot from scratch and we used a lot of original pieces. So I put a lot of pressure on myself to kind of use as much of that as I could.
0: You know, it's interesting because I costume design and work in costumes in America. And I'm super curious kind of the difference, um, how departments are organized in the UK. But do you start by, so you you get the script. Do you kind of have a trajectory already about where the season's
2: going? Yes, I think we had a a sort of treatment that gave us a a rough breakdown of what might be in store. Um, And then the scripts were kind of rolled out as we went. And I think we filmed two episodes together so you would do one and two three and four five and six so that locations wise it made a bit more sense um, so you did have a have an overview but the when you, you know you'd break down the script and there would be so many specific requirements for each script that were controlled hugely by what they were doing at the time where if they were having you know whatever conversation and thing that happened within the script the costumes were dictated by um, what time of day it was what event they were partaking in because there were so many rules of dress that were adhered to at that time, so yeah. And designing is such
0: a collaborative process too, right? So you're collaborating, you know, you have those initial meetings with the director and you guys kind of agree on expectations for that episode or whatnot, but then you're also collaborating with other departments, right?
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, my job's very collaborative. The initial conversations are with my producers who showrun the the, the the show, as it were, um, alongside the director. I work closely with um, Donal Woods, the production designer, um, Nick Collins, the hair and makeup designer, the, the, the cinematographer, our director of photography. I would work closely with in terms of lighting and grading, and you, you know how the fabrics were going to behave in front of the camera. So you're always looking at where your are going to, like the world that they're going to inhabit and how um, they're going to work with each other and against that set. So there's lots of different considerations when you're working out what each person wears. They're not, they're never in isolation. They're always working within a sort of yeah, multi-factored setting.
0: And can you tell us a little bit about how your department structured? How many costumers and tailors and cutter fitters, um, how many people worked in just in the costume department on any given episode?
2: It's a bit tricky to think back, actually, because this, it, 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 it's, been, it's been five or six years since I started. And I've then gone on to design the film and the film was a bit bigger. Um, and so my, my memory of the television series has faded a little bit. But, um, essentially, it was, it was a, a small workroom on the series. I had one cutter and two full time makers and a trainee. Um, and I would draft in additional seamstresses um, as I needed to. I had a supervisor and um, an assistant designer, and then I had my on-set team, wardrobe manager and uh, two or three standbys, and then a crowd department of two. So it was a a smaller department in the film which then increased um, across the board. I had a slightly bigger workroom, I had a a breakdown and dyeing department, so I was able to dye my fabrics um, in-house. And I've always outsourced to the the same amazingly talented people, so my my milliner, my cobbler, my jewelers are people that I would employ in a kind of outworker capacity, but still very much are were part of my team
0: and I'm glad you mentioned the kind of outsourcing of um to these different you know specialists, but can you talk about a little bit more about sourcing costumes and the materials because um you know from vintage shopping to rental houses to custom made clothing All of these elements went into the making of Downton Abbey.
2: Absolutely. So, I mean, I've always had the the approach as a designer on any show I've done to cast my net as wide as I possibly can to get the the very best that there is on offer, um, be that fabric um, or original pieces. Um, And I've always been very passionate about using originals. I love giving them another lease of life. I love um, celebrating the craft. Um, I think in some ways you can't ever replicate what was made back then, the the sort of heavily beaded dresses of the 20s. We would never in a million years have had the budget to make from scratch. They would have taken months and months um, of of hand beading and it just wouldn't have been um, feasible. So you get to use the very beautiful um, craftsmanship of the of the era, if you, if you go back and find them. I guess the problem was that the pieces were um, quite fragile. Some of them were, weren't in the best state, and I'd have to set the bar um, as to what was going to read as being, you know, bespoke, made and new um, on camera. So um, we set the bar quite high and um, either found things that were in... A really good state of repair and they may have needed a bit of strengthening, a bit of reinforcing or they needed a bit of restoration work Um, and I had some incredible people within my workroom uh, that would do that but often it would be a a, a sort of fragment from a dress that had seen better days and I would incorporate that into a a new make and then spend a lot of time sourcing fabrics that matched perfectly in terms of weight and colour and and quality, and then sort of graft these pieces together, so yes i I shopped for vintage in in London at a lot of the monthly and biannual fairs and then and then went further afield, I'd travel up to Scotland over to Paris. I have a, a dealer from the states that would um come over to show me what he had, and yeah, i just i I could pick the very best pieces that fulfilled the brief that I already had in mind, so I'd have. Colors and shapes, and obviously um they had to be right for the character. So, as I went came onto the show and got to know the characters, it became very easy to spot an Edith or a Mary or a Lady <laughs> Rose, um, you know, from fifty paces. And yeah, that's uh, th- that was a large part of how I tackled um, the evening wear specifically. Um, daywear was harder to find and I would tend to make from scratch a lot more, especially for lady mary who I, I could never find um what I had in my mind first so she was very often completely bespoke and our men'swear our men'swear tended to be tailored from scratch through cosprop or through my um, amazing tailor Chris Kerr, simply because men in this day and age are completely different shape and size from the original suiting that, that that has uh, that has remained.
0: I'd love to hear a little bit more about your design process. Um, you know, you said you had something very specific in mind for Lady Mary, for instance. So where are you doing a lot of your historical research?
2: I mean, I did a lot of sort of base research at the, at the very beginning when I came on board to Understand the the era and the sort of many details and um, construction elements that I wanted to get to grips with, and I I spent a lot of time um, at the VNA, um in their archive, in the portrait gallery. Um, I visited photographic exhibitions, libraries. Um, you know, a huge amount of online research that would take me down a rabbit hole of yeah. <laughs> um, sources, and then I would spend time sort of gathering those sources and and and. Looking over them, fashion designers from the time, so either looking at original pieces in the v and a or looking at their kind of back catalog, their illustrations were sometimes a nice um, starting point because there was always there was already something slightly abstracted about them, and you sort of took different things from them um than a kind of very literal referencing of actual fashion garments um I was thinking illustration holds a certain amount of magic and if from the fabrics themselves so i i would sometimes use a, a, a piece of beading as a bit of inspiration and and just design from scratch around that with i guess just this understanding of the period and it would then become a more original design Um when it felt right i would reference designers patu or you know the kaletsu or, or whoever it was where you felt that perhaps On that occasion, Lady Mary had bought an actual designer piece. But, yeah, I mean, it's a varied approach, I think, in pulling it together, um, hopefully, so that it feels rich and real and not unilateral.
0: You know, it's really an interesting question, and I know... all costume designers doing period films really have to negotiate historical accuracy with, you know, kind of expectations of a modern audience. Um, Was that something you found yourself having to do a lot? Or do you think because the 1920s is something we're we're kind of all very familiar with, you kind of have to do less than that?
2: I don't, yeah, it's, I mean, every job you do is different. And with Downton, very specifically, there was a huge emphasis on its historical accuracy. So I did feel much more of a responsibility to be quite faithful to the period. And so, yeah, it was a kind of slightly more intense process in that respect. I worked very closely with Alistair Bruce, our historical advisor, who is um, the font of all knowledge and was known as the oracle um, (laughs) on set. And there were were military aspects which you always feel that you have to get absolutely spot on um, because there was, you know, there's no subjective view of just as it was and should be shown that way in in, in this um, genre, in this type of programme. You know, I've worked on shows where you're able to kind of use a heightened sense or a stylized sense or a controlled palette, whereas on Downton there was, a, I guess, what made it special and um, so loved at the time was its... Uh, faithfulness to the period and um, so I, I you know it's difficult though because as a as a designer as a contemporary designer you have a modern eye so i've always sort of thought that i was curating pieces and looks from that time that would be covetable by a modern audience i'm, I'm designing for a modern audience but i'm just using um aspects elements from that time and pulling them together in a way that should feel in some ways contemporary but are still um absolutely accurate within the actual decade that it's set in.
0: And you mentioned Alistair Bruce, which he he was essentially the person who would tell all departments, right? Like, this is historically accurate. This is how they would have done this. This is how this would have looked. What did you learn about the social customs of dressing affluent British nobility? Was there anything that surprised you about kind of their everyday lives and relationship to clothing?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I thought that our cast changed a lot. You know, we would have sort of three or four changes in any given story day for our our women um, and gentlemen upstairs. Um, But in actual fact, they probably changed seven to eight times a day. But I think it was decided quite early on in the show that it would just feel too hectic and uh, the the pace of it would feel a bit disjointed to see the accurate number of changes in any given day. They might end up feeling like continuity mistakes. Right. (laughs) So it was pared down in a way, and yet it still fe- very much felt like they were changing every other minute. So I th- I found that quite quite fascinating. You know, their their lives were really were dictated by these codes and etiquettes, and must have been incredibly tiresome. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, but really fun for me. I got to just uh, <laughs> you know design more costumes as a result of it. So I wasn't I wasn't really complaining. Um, I just just the little things that would come up I mean it was even you know you know when your gloves were on and off when you're eating or drinking and um, you know the hat hat on hat off rule the tiaras were only for married women I mean some of the stuff I knew already from having just um, understood the, the period a bit but Alistair's knowledge was um, incredible and very well placed um, so we were very lucky to have him and in some ways it's ruined me because I have the um, <laughs> thirst to understand the the, the etiquettes of, of the time and it's, I've taken it forward onto other jobs and I'm sure I'm a complete pain for production <laughs> when I point out that certain things can't be so. So yeah, I've had to kind of learn to loosen up and free myself a little bit from the constraints of being historically accurate, having, you know, post-Downton
0: Well, as a fashion historian, I can tell you that we all very much appreciate that commitment to historical accuracy. Um, Because, you know, a lot of us, maybe not all of us, but a lot of us do watch movies and can kind of notice and appreciate when, when it's really adhered to in a way. So, you know, one of my favorite aspects of Downton Abbey and something that makes Downton Abbey so special. And and I think the reason it's so successful is that it's not just about this affluent British family, right? It's also about the people who worked for them and who supported their everyday lives. I think some of my favorite moments from the series are, you know, kind of those intimate moments between Anna and Lady Mary when she's getting her dressed or undressed, and we really care about the servants of the house just as much as that family that they served. And I'm curious to know, were there any challenges in dressing the household staff? I, I would think it might be more difficult, actually, to find primary source documentation of what servants from this period would have worn, but maybe I'm not correct.
2: No, no, you are correct. It's, it's much harder to find um, references and visuals and find any any garments that are, that are in a a decent state to be able to analyse the construction of them because they were they were worn out, um, rather than kept for good and have therefore sur- sort of survived in great condition. And yeah, there's just less written about the the, the hidden world of downstairs. But it was, and it's also a, a bit more challenging because once you've got their, their uniforms correct and their uniforms should should speak of their character and of their position within the household, you then have you know, very few costumes to, to kind of make little kind of character references and tell their stories. So when you do have them in their civilian attire, you really feel like you've got to hit the nail on the head um, quite concisely to kind of sum up their character because you don't get as many costumes with which to tell their story. So yes, it's challenging in that way. Um, but I, but I, I, you know, I love them as much as I love the upstairs. And you, you know, it's a family upstairs and a family downstairs, and all together in the house, they're they're kind of a big family, lots of different dynamics.
0: You designed the fifth season of the show as well as its sixth, and the sixth was the final season. But lucky for all of us fans, the highly anticipated Down Abbey film came out last year, and I believe there's already talks of a sequel in the works, um, which is very exciting. You know, the TV show, I must say, always delivered on the costumes, and the film was no exception. Congratulations, and thank you for a beautiful, beautiful movie.
2: <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much.
0: The costumes were exceptional. And I mean, what a feat. And I'm I'm curious too, I know what the difference is, but can you tell our listeners, like, what's the difference between designing for a film versus television? It's kind of a whole different beast.
2: Yes, it, it absolutely is. I mean, in some ways, the the structure of filming felt very, very familiar, but that's probably just because I was coming back home to um, the, the cast and crew and I, I, I knew the characters really well. Usually on a film, you're starting from scratch and coming to understand um, the characters that you're uh, helping to costume. Um, but everything else about it was quite different. It was a a, a shorter shoot and um, it was one script rather than nine. So in some ways I had, I had fewer costumes w- with which to tell the story that we wanted to tell. You know, I think that our upstairs ladies had about 16, 17 changes across wow. the film, whereas on the television series they would have over a hundred. Um, oh so, you know, you know if, you, and if you multiply that up with the number of casts, you get to see, you know, that you've got so much to play with to compose your scenes and explore micro-trends and create beautiful kind of colour schemes and, and, and all of that. So with the film, I had to be a kind of more edited version of that and really think about it and craft it. And I think what's lovely about film is that I had a little bit more time to do that and a little bit more money. But uh, I guess the thing that had the most practical impact was understanding that my costumes were going to be seen in terms of feet um, or meters rather than (laughs) inches um, and that every single detail would be seen. So the the quality control on the original pieces, uh, you know, and the bespoke makes was just that much higher. You know, they really had to look. Like museum quality pieces, and so the search was was harder, and it took longer to get the pieces to to that level. And then I, you know, I, we've always tackled Downton the series as a as a as a piece that should feel quite cinematic. That's always been kind of a goal of the show, and I think that's why the show stood out so much, um, you know, on on television. Um, but I think we all we all just had this sense that we needed to elevate it further, you know, do even better than we'd done before. And, you know, just pull out all the stops. Yeah. Bring out all the diamonds and really go on film. <laughs> right. And that
0: includes dressing Queen Mary and King George V. What, because, you know, the Crawley family is fictional, but the queen and king are not, they're real people um, with real references for you. And can you tell us a little bit about when into designing their wardrobe? I know you worked closely with past dressed guest, John Bright and his amazing collection as
2: part of the process. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, I mean, it was an—it was a brilliant, exciting challenge. When I read the script for the film, um, I, every page I turned, I just thought, oh, "This just gets better and better." I can't, <laughs> I can't, have, couldn't have written a better sort of costume-based script for Downton Abbey if I tried. And as soon as it brought in, you know, the real royals. Um, It was an amazing opportunity to sort of flex a different design muscle because you're right, you spend a lot of time creating these fictitious characters that almost feel real to you. And, you know, everything that they wear makes sense as as a whole. But when you then go on to design for real life people, you are working with a great deal of imagery, the royals are very well documented, which is amazing. You're able to kind of pull together a huge amount of visual research um, to to sort of do a good job. But at the same time, it means that are, there's a lot of material upon which to be judged and the comparisons can be drawn pretty directly. Um, but I tackled it in a couple of ways, actually. With with Queen Mary, I took a lot of references and, and designed um, costumes that had a, a flavour and a sense of what she uh, might have worn, um, the evening dresses in particular, um, usually because I'd found a bit of beading or a bit of lame that I wanted to incorporate, and um, that, t- that was the starting point. But there were a couple of costumes that came as a sort of homage to some photographs that I just adored, um, and so I worked with John Bright quite closely to kind of analyse the photos and try and work out how we thought they'd been made, you know, really working out what the the fabrics were and what we thought the colours were, and and sort of brought them to life. And I'm I'm really proud of them. I think you can you can hold a, a photograph of the Queen and a still from the film, and and they're incredibly similar. Um, and that was really fun and really challenging, and I loved it. But the whole journey for her was really special. And when when I started and, and spoke to John about um, the fact that we were designing for her, he brought out some of her her own clothes. So he That's has right. some examples <laughs> of her clothing in his archive, which wow. is just astonishing. So you know, it wasn't even looking at, at the sort of embellishment on the outside. it was looking at the construction and how they were made, so that we could be really faithful in terms of how we we tailored and um, and and draped her her dresses. There was a kind of a, a deceptive simplicity about how they were put together, but with the way the fabrics um, were combined and embellished, um, gave them this feeling of being really encrusted and sort of heavily decorated. There was, there was one dress for the ball um, that I think possibly is one of the, the best costumes I've ever had the privilege of designing. And I'd found this um, incredible um, vintage um, silver lace um, and a couple of other pieces that fitted in really well. And John said, oh, I think I've got I think I've got something that could really work with that and went off to his sort of magic store cupboard and brought out this <laughs> silver lamé. And, I mean, and it was a perfect match. And he then revealed that it, it was also from her collection of fabrics wow. that he had acquired. So the dress that Geraldine wears at the ball is actually made from fabric that belonged to the Queen. Oh, my goodness. And it was just, you know, the hairs on your arms stand up at yeah. moments like that. And you just <laughs> feel like you're the, you know, you're the luckiest person in the world to do what you do when you can uncover gems like that. It just felt so special. And I know that Geraldine loved the process. And, you know, what a special, special moment for her as well. Well, and
0: costume's so powerful in that way, right? Because you're not only telling a story and supporting the story with your costumes, you're helping the actor to become that character. And I can't imagine that experience of these actors coming into your fitting room and putting on these, these garments once, you know, I know it's a process with the fittings and everything, but to have that final piece on their
2: body must be really special. Absolutely, and I think the process itself is important because I think it's a journey, and I think it's hopefully, if I've done my job well, then it, it helps them get there, and adds something to the process that they would could go through anyway. Um, you know, with Geraldine, there was a lot of undergarment to help create a, a body shape that she doesn't naturally have, and and it was that the kind of the posture changed, the way she held herself, the way she walked, the way she sat, um, suddenly became really really regal and you know I know that she found that uh, quite an important step you know and I would say the same for for our king in terms of how everything was tailored and you're going into things that are structured differently from contemporary suiting and contemporary clothing and it does the same thing to the way the way he behaved and held himself and sat on a horse and you know all that kind of thing so I mean I like Michelle Dockery I think was quoted as saying she really felt like she'd she'd come back to Downton when she put on Lady Mary's shoes you know it's a (laughs) a sort of emotional psychological right thing and hopefully it adds to their experience as an actor as well
0: oh I'm sure um, that is unquestionable For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
3: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? You know,
0: I'm glad you mentioned Lady Mary because there are many costume highlights from the Downton Abbey show and um, the movie. But one of my favorite moments in the film is Lady Mary's when she comes out in that blue. Now, And now that I've done research, it's a blue Fortuny gown that was original. It's made by Fortuny for Michelle. Can you tell us about the special relationship you created with Fortuny? Because, like I said, this goes back into the TV show, some of the best Costume moments, in my opinion, are all the Fortunies (laughs) that make uh, repeated appearances.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, I wouldn't disagree with you on that. I mean, uh, that was also a really amazing uh, moment. Fortuny um, got in touch with me um, during the series and offered the the use of some of their archive pieces. And I, you know, I actually didn't couldn't really work out whether they were being serious, whether it was a hoax. You know. And I said yes within about 35 seconds. Right. And we spent a bit of time sort of logistically working out how to bring the pieces over from New York where they were stored. Um, and we did a, a couple of fittings with Michelle and Lily. And, I mean, goodness me, it was a, a privilege to use them when you you hold them in your hands and you look at them up close. The the craftsmanship and the beauty of them is just um indescribable, really. Um, but from that point, I, I, I got on very, very well and became firm friends with Mickey Riyad, who is one of the owners of Fortuny and its, and, um, its creative director. And we have stayed very much in touch. Um, and then when it came to the film, there was an opportunity to, to use the technique that uh, Fortuny had spent the last few years unlocking so the the secret of the pleat has been unlocked Um, wow that's huge (laughs) yeah and so we're I know it really is a very exciting moment and to be able to debut it on on the film felt you know it felt poetic and it felt perfect and it felt like the right the right time and the right character so it's 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 in a kind of a new original if you see what I mean and so we we died up um, some silk, this really beautiful kind of Prussian blue, and it was hand pleated. Um, and then we, we we made up a gown, um, so hand, hand um, sewed this beautiful gown for, for Lady Mary. And I, I altered the neckline um, a bit. Mariana Fortuny didn't really do v-necks, I don't think. I've not found references that suggest that that was part of his typical repertoire. Mm. Um, but I wanted to just give it a you know a sense that it that it is new um and a bit of drama and um you know it's such a striking front and back that you get like a kind of great shot when she's facing camera or walking away from the camera so yes it's absolutely hands down one of my favorite costumes in the film and it was an incredible privilege to be able to work with for and and do that
0: Yeah, and just, you know, kind of I'm sure our listeners don't need reminding, but so you have that incredible floor-length red pleated gown from this TV show, and then Mary walking in and out in this new original Fortuny gown, blue, in the film. Again, just an exceptional, incredible moment. I mean, our listeners who haven't seen it, we won't, you know, give anything away, but you can expect a lot, a lot, a lot of special (laughs) costume moments in this film. (laughs) And that's seen with the Fortuny gown. Oh my goodness. So are there any other moments over your time designing for Downton that stand out in particular for you?
2: I mean there's too many to name to be honest it's really hard and if your next question is what's your favorite costume I just won't be able to answer it because I won't ask you. it's just too hard but yeah um, you know there's a few I mean every time you're able to design a, a bridal outfit it's it's really special you know there's so much focus and you you've only got one chance to do it right and Lady Edith's wedding dress um, at the end of series six is is definitely one of my favorites and it was this Amazing collection of original Brussels lace that I've managed to piece together that that matched so perfectly that I was able to put the whole thing together. So I turned a a sort of shorter dress into something longer and completely altered the neckline and added sleeves. Um and then that was all paired with this pristine, beautiful Brussels lace train that I'd found in a wow. in an antiques fair. And I, I think just the, the way that came together. Um, and, and, you know, and for her to have her moment and ha- get her happy ending, I think, just came together as a really special moment. But there's lots, you know, that I think the moment where I, I really felt like I'd found how where I wanted to go with Lady Mary was uh, at the fashion show um, pretty early in Series 5. And there was this sort of light bulb moment when I... Referenced an illustration in a in a, a 1920 source book, and as soon as we put it onto Michelle with the kind of color blocking, with this red hat, this navy and white dress with this red hat, yes. um, was a, a real eureka moment for me, and <laughs> um, and that sort of like unlocked something in me, and I think with Michelle as well, and we were able to just run with it, and yeah, that was a, that was a, that was a good one. I mean, I mean, I could I would I would be here for days just running <laughs> through all of the amazing. Like vintage finds that I've, I found, you know, some incredible opera coats that I think probably only saw on screen for five seconds, but were just such special things to uncover. I don't know, a Mrs. Hughes wedding coat that was sort of hand beaded and hand embroidered and was such a labour of love and so lovely to be able to dress a downstairs character in something so fine. I'd need to sort of uh, remind myself of everything that happened in the <laughs> it's, it's, it's so prolific in terms of what we did.
0: And lucky for our listeners, of course, we will have the show we can always watch in the film. But these costumes tour a lot, actually. Um, There's been a couple different exhibitions that have kind of toured. So um, dress listeners can kind of keep their eyes open for that. I know right now um, there's an exhibition of Downton Costumes at Biltmore House in um, North Carolina. So, you know, keep your eyes open, dress listeners. And you can see some of these really special pieces in person. I mean, what a special special, you know, opportunity for you to have had this experience um, to work on a film that is really, film and TV show that is really iconic and is going to go down in fashion history and film history and um, something I think people will be referencing and talking about for many, many years to come. So before I let you go, I just have um, a few more questions. One is just, are there any other Anna Robbins Design projects our fans should keep their eyes out for. I have to say I was on the plane coming back um, from a recent trip and I just watched Wild Rose, which was incredible.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's a little gem of a film. I'm very proud of that. And um, yeah, it's a a lovely, lovely film and it was just glorious to work on um, and a a great, fun um, costume design exercise.
0: Yes, completely different but a uh, contemporary film about this woman from Glasgow who aspires to be a country singer um, but set in contemporary times. Are there any other projects you have coming out or working on?
2: Uh, yes yeah, so I, I, um, I worked on two films last year. I um, A contemporary piece called The Father, which was based on a a French play by Florian Zeller, who then um, made his directorial debut, bringing it to the big screen. And that has the wonderful Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Colman um, at the helm. And it was a contemporary piece, but really interesting and conceptual in terms of how we told uh, the story as it unravels. Um, And I think it should be very beautiful and very moving. It's about um, a man and his relationship with his daughter as he starts to lose his his memory. And then later on in the year, I uh, costume designed Last Letter from Your Lover, uh, which is an adaptation of a Jojo Moyes book and was the best of both worlds for me. I do love contemporary and period and I can never bring myself to to just go down one route um, but this film combined the two so it was this uh, a, a journalist in contemporary london who finds a series of love letters and it flashes back to 1965 to tell the story um of the of the people behind the letters so there was a another decade for me to explore and that was yeah a really a really fun challenging challenging
3: job
0: and that's what's so exciting about being a costume designer because really we're kind of like freelancers, right? So every project can be different. Every project you get to go into a, this whole different world to explore. So it's it's very exciting and we will keep our eyes open for those projects. Um, and before you go, one final question. Do you have any advice
2: for aspiring costume designers? Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> yes, I do. I do. I mean, I think you have to work hard in this industry but you have to love it as well. So never lose your passion and never lose sight of where you want to go because then you'll you'll get there you know be confident um contact the people that you admire yeah, be opportunistic i was i was very opportunistic and said yes to uh, you know everything that just sounded interesting bonkers bizarre or difficult you know nothing i didn't let anything Put me off, and you just don't know what small insignificant experience might lead to, so some of the biggest jobs I've done, you can kind of pull a thread and and kind of um find myself back to these obscure short films and um you know things I did back in the kind of early days and that have absolutely directly linked to to where I am now, so whatever journey you're on is the journey you're meant to be on um and you can use every experience to 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 kind of propel you forward into this. Amazing industry, a great field and just a, a fantastic, a fantastic career.
0: Anna, thank you so much for being here. This was a real pleasure.
2: Oh, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you so
0: much for having me.
1: Anna, thank you for being here. That was amazing.
0: It really, truly was. And April, I have to know. Do you have a favorite fashion moment from the show or film that you'd like to share with us? Well, I don't know if it's like a a
1: specific costume per se, but I really appreciated um, the point where everyone bobbed their hair and (laughs) all the amazing millinery that then happened from that point forward in terms of like the cloches. And it was just like, I was like, yes, we're getting there. We're going somewhere. And also, I really like the fact that Um, When they did bob the hair, it pointed out that the bob wasn't always that, like, perfectly sleek, straight bob. Um, You know, women who had curl and body to their hair also bobbed their hair, and so we get to see um, uh, different ranges of the bob, and I really appreciated that. I bobbed my hair like a flapper back in 2010, and one of the reasons I ended up growing it out is because I couldn't keep that sleek, slick look that I wanted. Right. <laughs> and and now that I've like delved into that a little bit further, I was like, oh, I could have rocked that. I just didn't know how to style it exactly right.
0: Which reminds me of my senior year of high school when I too tried to bob my hair, but did not have the necessary skills to maintain
1: that <laughs> hairstyle. <laughs> well, you, you have a ton of hair. Your hair yeah. is like super thick.
0: Yeah, yeah. It did not go well. (laughs) Yeah, I have to say the 1920s were my by far some of my favorite fashion moments of the entire series. I think once you get into that era, especially with Anna Mary's seasons, she just has such an eye for design. And then also, as she mentioned in the podcast episode, she incorporates so much actual vintage into her work. So just so, so fun and such an incredible, incredible show for fashion alone. What about you? Do you have a favorite look? or a moment? Gosh, that's really hard. I thought everything, I loved the movie because the 1920s Clothing across the board was on point, and like the those just incredibly sumptuous materials. Lady Mary's just like a walking fashion plate. That entire movie, <laughs> she is so impeccably dressed, every single scene, um, and her mother and sister too. And of course, there's that whole part in the movie about Edith's haute couture gown that comes and doesn't fit her exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, yes, and like you, the era of the 1920s, I thought, was really fun and successful across the series and the movie.
1: Well, I do have to say that one of the things that makes the show so special cast was, of course, also the colorful cast of men and women who comprise the Crawley's staff. And while we might be in awe of the Crawley women's wardrobes, it's people like Mr. Bates and Mrs. Hughes, Daisy and Mrs. Patmore that we can relate to and sympathize with. And that is why next week's episode is going to be entirely dedicated to the uniforms worn by real life domestic servants um, of the 19th and early 20th century. And um, I've been working on this episode for a couple weeks now, and I found a ton of information on this topic, cast And I just want to say... There was a very distinct class hierarchy that was at play at that time, and these relationships were incredibly complicated, and not all domestic employees and their employers always had this kind of more or less happy, peaceful relationship that the Crawleys had with (laughs) their staff. (laughs) I'm just saying, it wasn't always based on mutual respect as we witnessed in Downton, and we will get into that and talk about that a little bit next week in our full-length episode.
0: Yep. And you might have to wait an entire week for our next full length episode, but I'm happy to say that all six seasons of Downton are streaming now for your viewing pleasure. You can find them on Amazon Prime or on PBS's Masterpiece streaming service, which is incredible. Um, That does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider adding a little Downton Abbey flair to your wardrobe next time you get dressed.
1: that is all for us today. Please remember to tune in this Thursday for our mini where we share the latest in fashion and fashion history news as well as events and also answer your fashion history mystery questions. We love hearing from you, so if you would like to email us and perhaps even submit your own fashion history mystery query, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com.
0: And as always, you can also direct message us on Instagram at Dressed Underscore Podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episode. At Dressed Underscore Podcast is also our Twitter handle. And you can follow us on Facebook at Dressed Podcast without the underscore. As always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram,
1: Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. We will catch you on Thursday.